you're listening to the Pro Bono Happy Hour, I'm Rena Glazer. Welcome back. Today's guest is once again Greg McConnell from Winston & Strawn. Greg is based in Chicago, and we had such a wide-ranging conversation that we've broken it up into two episodes. This week, in part two, we discuss why pro bono is more than winning, how to create a firm-wide culture of pro bono, the innocence record, and more. We hope you enjoy our conversation. We are talking to Greg McConnell about the power of pro bono. So you're in Chicago, so I have to ask, Cubs or White Sox, Bears, Bulls, or Blackhawks? Well, see, you, you, if, if, you, if you were an Illinois native, you'd know the answer to that by where I grew up, being within the sphere of WGN, uh, the home of the Chicago Cubs for years and years and years. So everybody where I grew up is a Cubs fan because you could get the Cubs on cable back in, in those days. So I'm a Cubs fan, uh, have become increasingly fond of the Sox. So there's a, there's a rivalry there, but um, I, I'm sort of fan-friendly to both teams. The Bears have been not so good in the last several years, but the Bears, I think, are sort of the, the heartbeat of the, uh, uh, of the Chicago uh, sports fan community. So once, once they regain their footing, um, they, will, they will be the dominant team again. And the Hawks have been incredibly fun. Um, I have the pleasure of looking out over the Chicago River from my office where I'm looking out right now, actually, and uh, they won their um, first title, I don't know, uh, six, seven years ago after having had a, a terrible record for a number of years. And the number of people that were flooding downtown in in red and black jerseys was astonishing. And people from everywhere in the city, it was uh, everybody embraced the Hawks who didn't know anything about hockey at all. So it was, it's, they have been a terrific uh, fan story. So it's interesting, you know, WGN was such an early cable channel for, for, you know, networks around the country. Super Super channel. channel. Yeah. So I think there are a lot of Cubs fans everywhere, but after last fall, there, there are a lot of Cubs fans everywhere. Yes. 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 And that was really just a, uh, that was just a fun, fun period um, watching all that. So um, it was great. So since we're talking a little bit about Chicago, tell us about the overall and general pro bono and access to justice culture like in the city. What, what are, what's the vibe? What's the community like? What are the areas of pressing legal need kind of for people who aren't there? What, how would you describe it? Well, I am biased about it. I think it's, I think it's a terrific community. Um, I, I, I don't spend as much time in New York and D.C., um, and I, I'm familiar with those communities, and, and they're also terrific, but I think Chicago is certainly um, right up there with them in terms of the um, diversity and the offerings in terms of the legal aid organizations, the, the, the services that are being offered up. Um, there are probably 10 or so pro bono counsel here in, in Chicago, so there's a very solid core of us that meets regularly and um, works closely with one another on different programs. Um, And then one thing that I think sets Chicago apart from virtually all of the other large markets is the Chicago Bar Foundation, which is a remarkable, remarkable organization. They are a 
a funder of legal services. So uh, the, all the firms uh, and really all the lawyers in the city have embraced the Bar Foundation as a uh, a funding source. So um, you know, giving the Bar Foundation money, the Bar then uh, re-gifts that money, and they have a very rigorous process. So so they have this um, this sort of uh, uh, oversight role as well because. You know, like any like any grant maker, they are accepting bids, they're making site visits, and so they are offering some level of quality control to their grant making. And as well, then because it's connected to the bar and they have their own um, outreach to firms, we all the firms sort of independently have a relationship with the Bar Foundation, which also so that puts them then in this unique role as a um, as a go between uh, from the firms to the Legal aid organizations, um, they regularly host meetings where we're all coming together and, and having a whole different set of dialogue. And they uh, have created this Access to Justice campaign, which is now, I think last year was its 10th year, um, which is about individual giving. Um, and the firms and the legal community here have embraced it to the point of giving upwards of you know, a million and a half, I think a million seven last year, through individual donations, not from the institutions themselves. And that's just free money. That's money that wasn't there that is now going back to the legal aid organizations because the Bar Foundation is using that to make their grants in addition to the other money that, that they are receiving from, from its other donors. So it is free money, um, and it's a, it's a terrific event every year, and, and the community understands uh, what they're doing, and uh, by that they understand what the legal aid organizations are doing. So it's a great communication tool as well to the value of legal services. So between the, the foundation and the, the strong core of pro bono counsel and the array of 35 legal aid organizations, I'd say it's, um, if not the best, certainly one of the best legal aid communities in the country. So speaking of culture, our crack research team uh, found where you have spoken before about establishing a culture of pro bono at the firm and making sure that it isn't just represented by, I think pockets was the word you used, but that pro bono is firm wide. So could you tell us about creating a culture of pro bono? I think particularly for firms that feel like they're starting from scratch a little, I think they could really use some insights in terms of how do you create a, a culture of pro bono firm wide? Well, it, you know, it's the whole idea of that's an interesting question because what what do you mean by that, for example? And, and I'm not asking you specifically just sort of rhetorically, right? What is, what is meant by building a culture of pro bono? What, what's, what's the implicit part of that? What, what are you saying? Do you mean you're doing a lot? Do you mean you're, you're doing big cases? Um, you know, do you mean that there's um, uh, good policies in place? What does that mean? Um, it's, a, it's a very nebulous term. Um, and I, I know that in various meetings I've been to over the years, that, 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 that question always gets raised. Do you, do you have a good pro bono culture? Well, if you can't even define what it is, how do you measure whether it's any good or not? Um, it's a very tricky concept, and it means many different things. I'd say almost to the point sometimes of not having a terrifically um, important meaning in and of itself, right? Um, so if that sounds like I'm kicking a little dirt on it, maybe I am. I, I, I think there are better ways of expressing that. Um, in our firm, and I can only really speak for, for what we've done, um, uh, I give a tremendous amount of credit to our, our managing partner um, for establishing what 
we would call our pro bono culture. So five or six years ago, um, he and I had a meeting in his office and, and we have a, we have a good relationship, but you know, he's, uh, he's the, the managing partner of the firm for a good reason. He calls people to tasks and he, he has expectations and he asks what they're doing to meet those expectations. And, um, he asked me, he said, are we, are we a terrific pro bono law firm? Are we, a, are we an excellent pro bono law firm? And I, you know, of course I really wanted to say, of course we are, you know, that, <laughs> that's, that's the obvious answer from the recipient of that kind of a question. Right. Um, but the answer was, yeah, we're not, we're not excellent. We were okay. We were, we were solid. We weren't excellent. We weren't great. And I said as much first, his response was, we want to be an excellent firm in all regards, not just in terms of our commercial work, but we want to be an excellent law firm. We are an excellent law firm, but we can't be that if we have a, a mediocre pro bono program. That's not part and parcel of being an excellent law firm. We need to be excellent. So how do we get there? And so we thought a lot about it, and we felt like the, the best way to do that was to um, generate greater participation among all lawyers, because how can you tell the young lawyers that, that they should do pro bono if the people who are telling them that, the senior persons, the partners, are not doing it themselves? So you have to have some level of credibility. Um, and we felt like there was a certain amount of value of doing it in and of itself, that the people that aren't doing it probably should be doing it. Tom happens to be what I would call sort of a, a, a straightforward, old-fashioned Catholic in the sense of, you know, there's kind of right and wrong about things, and doing pro bono is one of those things you should just do, and that just falls in the easy, you know, it's the right thing to do category, and what's the discussion about it, right? I mean, <laughs> what's the debate? You should just be doing it. Um, and so that was the discussion that we had. And he said, all right, let's, we need to get more people involved. And that's, you know, that's your role. And so from that time when we were at probably, I don't know, 50 to 55%, if you're measuring it on the AMLA 20 hour, um, participation, um, criteria, we went from that to 92% last year. So, uh, as, as we would value it in terms of having wholesale participation, um, not limiting it to just associates or just to litigators, um, we've accomplished that. And I think that that's been driven by this idea of being excellent in all things, and that includes pro bono, and that means getting everybody in the game. I think that's such a great way of thinking about it, because it's not like you go to the superstore and pick pro bono culture off the shelf and bring it home and right. it's like, woo, it's done. I mean, you have to ask yourself, what does that mean to you? You know, what, what are your goals here? And so a goal of having high participation across the firm, right, that shows that pro bono is, you know, kind of broad, that that's translates and having leadership support that translates. And so I think it is a larger and deeper discussion than just, you know, turning the switch. Here we go on it off. It is. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, having um, our managing partner express that goal in no uncertain terms is essential to achieving that. And this, this past spring at our firm wide partner retreat, which we have biannually, we had undertaken a 18 month strategic planning initiative and we announced the results at the partner conference. 
Number six on the list was reaching very high targets for pro bono and becoming what is essentially a top 10 pro bono law firm um, and having you know nearly 100% participation. That was number six on our strategic planning list of 10 items. Um, so those sorts of things give it a level of magnitude and a level of credibility that uh, is really essential. I want to switch gears for a minute and ask you about something that Amanda Groves wrote. I think, is she the chair of the pro bono committee still? Or she was? is. Yeah. So she made some really interesting points in uh, a pro bono report that was published not that long ago by the firm, a newsletter, a semi-regular mm-hmm. report. Her message was called More Than Winning, which I find a really intriguing concept here. And she notes, I'm going to quote it because it's so well said. And, and she wrote, quote, Even without expecting to prevail on the merits, our teams fight the good fight. At least to me, it may be the most inspiring part of our pro bono practice. Many representations entail hard work, but no glory and rarely any notice. Yet our attorneys give it their all anyway. She goes on to observe that there's an aspect of pro bono that can make it an unusual undertaking for most of us. We may have no real expectation of winning in the traditional sense for our client, and that's okay. By providing Winston-style legal representation to those who are most in need, we confer respect and dignity to those who often are unaccustomed to such treatment, and we elevate the system of justice. Finally, she reminds us that, quote, when you take on a pro bono matter, you are likely more than just an advocate. You may be the source of hope, the touch of humanity that allows your client to manage a challenging world. I thought those were remarkable sentiments. Could you reflect on them and how they inform your leadership of the pro bono program? That was great. That was terrific. Um, <laughs> it's been a while since I've read that. Yeah, no, that's that's great. I think that that has everything to do with how we've sort of set about trying to identify opportunities, how we've tried to position these activities with our lawyers and trying to get them involved. It becomes quickly obvious uh, to most of our attorneys that uh, the clients that we work with have maybe never set foot in a, in a downtown office building. They've never had somebody who's in a, in a so-called position of authority listen to them to look them in the eye, to try to understand their problems, and then to advocate for them. That is just few and far between for most people. And to have somebody who's willing to do that and do that at no charge is something that regularly I think our clients find almost overwhelming. Um, It is not uncommon to see clients emotionally overwhelmed Um, you know, at the first or second meeting by having just the level of dignity and respect being bestowed on them uh, that they just, they find remarkable. And more problematically, they they just don't see it often enough. Um, And so that's a a big part of how we position this in terms of when we're coaching people, how they get into the case. Look, here's, here's what, you know, here's what you're going to be looking at with this client. Um, understand their perspective of things, understand where they're coming from, treat them with respect in terms of what we think are chances of success, uh, but let them know that we're going to do all we can, um, that we'll be frank with them about what our expectations are, but we're also going to let them know that we're going to do all that we can on their behalf. 
a lot of this for, for me stems from some of the dialogues I've had in the past with people that run um, homeless clinics, where it, one of the challenge with homeless individuals I personally find is that in, in Chicago and other places, you see so many individuals that are homeless and many of them may be asking you for something money or something else along the way. And you, you, you certainly don't want to respond to each and every one of those requests, but you also then don't want to turn away from somebody who obviously needs help, whether, you know, you're somebody that thinks that they have other things that they could be doing or whatever, that's great. But there's no question that they are in a bad position in life and a bad station in life. What can you do about that? And so many of the people that I've spoken to said, well, at a minimum, look them in the eye and treat them like a human because so many people do not do that, do not treat them as that. And that by doing so, you are helping elevate themselves in their own eyes. And so that I think imbues a lot of what we um, try to coach our lawyers and how we try to approach our pro bono cases. Yeah, I think in a nutshell, um, what you and Amanda have said really embodies the power of pro bono. It's really powerful. Um, could you tell us about the Winston and Strawn Fellowship Program? Yes. Uh, the, the fellowship program, we started here probably, I don't know, six or seven years ago. I should know that, but I don't know exactly. Um, and to be frank, we stole it. Um, you know, there are yeah. so few uh, good pro bono ideas that haven't been stolen from somebody else, and this is definitely one of them. Um, there's an organization here in Chicago, uh, the Public Interest Law Initiative, which for, I think, 30 years now has has been creating these fellowship programs. And, and by that, I mean they're taking postgraduate um, individuals and are placing them with um, our postgraduate law students, not individuals, law students specifically, and placing them with Chicago area public interest legal organizations during the time after graduation and the time that they embark on their full-time legal career, whatever that may be. Um, Pilly also does something similar for second-year law students. So in between their second and third year, they place them as interns, paid interns. So Pilly raises money to provide a stipend for those individuals. So we had been participating in Chicago for a number of years um, and then decided that we could do the same thing in our other market cities and uh, have made it more of a uh, a firm-wide activity. The the trick and the challenge is that in Chicago, when people want to work for a Chicago area public interest organization, we essentially just dovetail with the PILI program, and 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 PILI helps identify the appropriate organization and to make the um, make the placement. Uh, in other offices, it is more incumbent on me and our team, and also on the individual uh, fellow to identify a legal aid organization that's willing to be a host. Um, and I have to say, it's been a, it's just been a terrific success from my standpoint. There is few things more fun than to call up a, a legal aid organization. Um, two years ago, we called one up in Columbus, Ohio. We don't have an office there. And I explained to them that I wanted to send one of our incoming uh, uh, associates to work for them for three months, essentially, for free, um, and that what I really needed them to do was to find appropriate activities and to make sure they had, you know, an, an appropriate workspace, and, but then to otherwise use them as, as they saw fit. 
and the level of excitement was, you know, just tremendous, as as has been the case in virtually every placement. You know, these these legal aid organizations, which are just grossly overwhelmed in terms of the number of people that they're trying to serve, with the resources that they have, um, truly welcome these individuals. And so it's it has worked out to be just a, a great success in terms of giving back to the communities. Um, giving our lawyers sort of, you know, it helps them kind of get their brains around, our incoming lawyers, their brains around what it's like to show up every day and go to work and be a lawyer and not just be a law student. Um, and then, of course, um, there's the, the impact on our pro bono program where they're establishing relationships with these legal aid groups that are, they'll hopefully take back to the firm. Um, they'll be introduced to certain subject matter areas that they may want to pursue for pro bono activities when they join the firm. So, you know, without being overly trite, it's a win, win, win situation for everybody involved, the students, the firm, um, the legal aid organizations, and maybe ultimately the client. So I can throw a, a, a quadruple win in there. Yeah, another win. Um, how has interest been among the incoming associates? Is it pretty steady? Does it, you know, kind of ebb and flow, um, to, you know, to sort of drop off or average or, you know, is it continual? Do you know? Yeah, we, we have been steadily increasing participation in terms of our percentages. So the last two years were probably about the same. We had like 23 of our incoming associates, so roughly 34. Five to forty percent of our incoming class has joined on as fellows. The two biggest challenges are law schools that end late. Mm -hmm. So, for example, the University of Chicago is is a challenge for us because they have a they're on the uh, trimester format, and so the students don't get out until much later in the year, and then they are hard pressed to quickly start studying for the bar and get that all done, and then by the time they get done with the bar, they're just ready to take a breather, um, and so. A lot of the U of C students, um, uh, you know, find it a little bit of a time crunch to participate. Um, as well, some of that has to do with when they start with the firm. So, uh, in the last few years, Winston has uh, we started in in late mid to late September, which just doesn't provide much time after the bar, uh, which is almost always you know the last week, last few days of July, okay. to. Um, get a full eight to nine weeks in on a fellowship program. So we've had to adjust to be a little bit more flexible in terms of letting people start early on in the summer, immediately after they've completed classes and graduated, and then finishing up afterwards. Um, so that's been a, a real challenge. The other part is, um, you know, everybody these days, they want to go on a bar trip, and <laughs> yeah. many of them are getting married, and they have sort of these big, you know, yeah. personal yeah. Um, activities in their lives that they need to take care of before they start their careers, which makes total sense. <laughs> um, and so, you know, that's that's been a big part of the uh, the people that don't get involved have have those sorts of things on their on their schedule for the summer after law school. Yeah, that, I mean, the scheduling and logistics of the program is complicated, but it pays yeah. off, you know, on so many levels, as you, as you talked about. Yeah. So that's interesting yeah. to hear. So I wanted to travel a little bit in the way back time machine to talk about a really well-known project that the firm did that is so impressive. It's, it's not, you know, sort of super current. It's something that's been known for a while, but I really can't sort of not talk about it with you. It's such a formative project, and that's the Innocence Record. Could you tell us about that? Well, sure. As a firm, we have a long history with uh, Innocence cases, and um, um, the Innocence Project itself um, was really sort of um, a follow-up to that. So m maybe one of the more um, 
significant successes that we had at a firm was a representation of an individual by the name of Ken Berry. Um, Ken was um, wrongly convicted here in Chicago. Um, he ended up reaching out to Kimball Anderson, who I mentioned previously is the was the, the chair, really the, the founder of Winston's pro bono program. Kimball investigated the case and actually sent out a couple of young associates to go meet with Ken, including uh, a guy by the name of Dave Korup, who uh, later became a partner at the firm um, and, and helped create this project. But uh, we represented Ken on a, on a habeas matter. One is, one is habeas relief, which only then entitled us to retry his criminal case, which we then retried in state court and won. So it was unlike so many of the innocence cases today, which are all about um, forensic evidence, which then almost always result in a, in a finding of innocence when you win your habeas. This one we had to do it the old school way and go back into court and then retry the case and win. Um, and so from, from that period forward, we've always had a core group of people that have had a real strong interest in this area. And we set out then to establish a relationship with the Innocence Project itself in New York um, and, and met with a number of folks there about what we could do, what would be most valuable to them. And at the time, they said, you know, we have a number of cases, of course, and we're always processing those and we'll reach out to you. But um, one thing that we'd really like to do as we move into the next phase of our programming is to better capture all of the data that's happened in these cases. Um, we'd like to know, uh, we'd like to identify the various patterns that have happened in, in, the, in the various innocence cases that, that we found now that at the time, I think they had... The Innocence Project in New York had maybe 120 cases that they'd won when we started having this conversation. They're now up to like some extraordinary number, like 350 or 400. I'd have to go back and check their website. So it was sort of, you know, at a nascent time in its in its project development. And their goal at the time, and and still, which is you know so critical, is that you know it's great to go back in after the fact and you know spend five years litigating these cases and freeing somebody who's been wrongly convicted um, from incarceration. But it would be far better to prevent those on the front end and not have to deal with wrongful convictions because there are so many flaws in the criminal justice system and in the, in the process for um, gathering evidence that we think we can have an impact on. So, for example, one of the issues was where things like um, eyewitness um, testimony, eyewitness identifications, um, they wanted to find out, um, you know, how many um, in, in how many cases was there uh, an eyewitness um, identification? Um, what was its role in doing that? And you know how many? Um, how how were the identifications made? Um, they wanted to understand more about confessions because we've seen so many coerced confessions. So they wanted to identify how many of the individuals that were in these um, cases where they had been exonerated involved a coerced confession. So those were their questions. So they needed to gather the data. So what they asked us to do then was to try to gather all of these cases and all the case files, including a lot of the um, trial testimony, including the forensic uh, evidence testing, and to put it in a accessible and digestible format uh, so that they could then um, 
dive into those records that they could start pulling together patterns and then trying to come up with plans for improving the criminal justice system. And that's what we've been doing since 2006. Um, we're still working on the project. We're still in regular communication with the Innocence Project. Every time that there's a case where somebody gets exonerated, um, we reach out and try to grab a copy of it with the lawyers that have been involved along with the Innocence Project who are obviously helpful in gathering that. And then through our paralegals who help um, sort the files and then upload them into a um, into a computer database and then our lawyers review them they fill out a detailed uh, template that pulls out all the salient information and then it's posted on the innocence record and and uh, for researchers and others that want a deeper dive they can get into the um, into the back-end data that we have stored as well well thank you so much for fleshing that out I think it's such an amazing example of different way that pro bono lawyers can be of help and add value, not, you know, and pulling a lot of different pieces together to see the sort of parts that make up the whole that we don't always get, especially when we're working in our own little silo. So I think it's incredibly innovative and impactful. Yeah, it, it is. And it's, you know, the, the trick in a, in a project like that is, you know, you have to, you know, what's the, what's the success? Where do, you, where do you measure that? And how do you understand what you do? Well, then you, you see uh, where in a, in, a, in a state like Illinois, where now all of the police interrogations are videotaped. Um, that's a direct result of, of the Innocence Project advocacy of their being able to pull together the data that says, hey, look at all these cases where these were coerced confessions. This is not, you know, these are not um, uh, these are not exceptions. This is becoming, you know, more and more common, and, and this is a, a critical issue in terms of failings of the system, which can readily be improved by simply just identifying how these um, these confessions were were secured by the police, and then then the jury can decide whether they were coerced or not. Could you share another story or two of examples of pro bono matters that have been particularly meaningful to you for whatever reason over the course of your career? Sure. Um, you know, I, I think one of my personal cases was, uh, you know, it, it, since a garden variety asylum case, uh, a gentleman from Angola who was helping to lead some union organizing, actually, in Angola on some oil rigs. And as a result, was being persecuted, fled the country uh, after having a number of persecution incidents, beatings, and you know, sort of the the, the common things that you would see of that nature. He and I um, established a great relationship. He's now a cab driver in Chicago, and I I regularly see him. But it it, it gave me uh, a real insight into the client stories that that can happen, the relationships that you forge, particularly in the asylum area, which has probably always been maybe our, our number one area of practice. Um, certainly now under Maria Kutnick's leadership, it's, uh, it's by far and away our number one area. Um, so it had sort of this, this um, personal impact on me in terms of my relationship with the client and my understanding of the real impact of those cases. And, uh, and then that's um, been a part of our, our uh, a, you know, a stable of our pro bono practice ever since then. So that was a, uh, a significant one. Uh, I, I think the, the category of matters that I, I find to be maybe the most beneficial in terms of this satisfaction squared idea are some of the Seventh Circuit cases that we do. Um, we recently had one of our first-year lawyers that 
took on a habeas case coming from the Seventh Circuit. His supervisor, um, you know, he was new to the firm. He didn't have all the relations with a partner. So I, I connected him with the, the chair, a co-chair of our, of our litigation department. So not just your, your typical partner, but obviously somebody who's very accomplished and somebody who's an important person in the law firm. And they worked together to develop an argument. And, you know, along the way, they were you know, sort of giving me what their thoughts were about it. And both of them agreed that they just weren't very excited about our odds of success, um, that they thought that there was some particularly bad case law. And they were frankly fearful that uh, the associate was going to go into argument in the Seventh Circuit and get really beat up. Um, in fact, I saw the the partner and another partner who who both helped moot him. So we when we handle those, we go through a whole series of, of moots. Um, and, and they were just they were very anxious that it was going to be a, a traumatic experience for this for this young associate. And I got an email like 90 minutes later, just wildly ecstatic at, at what a great job that he had done and how the court had seemingly bought our argument. And, and ultimately he won. Um, but out of that, you have a, an, a new associate that has um, not just argued his first um, oral argument in the Seventh Circuit. He's he's won his first argument in the Seventh Circuit, and he's now also established to you know, the head of the litigation department that he's got the necessary chops to be a terrific lawyer and sort of established a reputation for himself. And, of course, we have a client that's won a habeas case and now gets to go back and we're going to represent that client. We, we are representing that client in his in his traditional habeas case. Um, in downstate Illinois. So to me, that's the, the kind of thing that we look for. They don't all have quite those, all the same elements or those elements to that degree, but those are the kind of things that, that just make me feel tremendously pleased about what we're doing as a firm, what I'm doing here, and the scale of things that we can accomplish. Well, that's awesome. It goes back to Amanda Groves. It's more than winning. Um, <laughs> but also, uh, we need to send that to the recruiting department immediately. That's amazing, right? For, uh, for well, that is the team. trick, yep. right? I mean, there are so many great stories, and and I, you know, you talked earlier about the challenges, and and um, you know, it's hard to always project those great stories because there's so many of them, and to identify the ones that are that are really the most meaningful is is often a challenge. It's a, sort of a challenge of riches in terms of which one we want, but the stories are so compelling. Um, and this client story is, is very compelling as well that, um, it's, it's a, it's frankly a challenge to, to find those and to get them out because there's so many of them. You want to, you want to be strategic about how you put that information out there. Um, and how you, how you get that to people. You, you certainly don't want to ignore it by any means, but at the same time, if we did that for every such case, we would do nothing but send those around all day. And that, that also has, you know, a, a kind of a numbing effect. So the, the trick is to project those in the, in the right way in the right venue. Well, Greg, you've been so generous with your time and your inspiration. Let's end with this. Who's your pro bono role model? Feel free to pick more than one and why. Well, I'd say I probably have a few uh, that I've, you know, that I've sort of modeled myself on. I like that you chose the word model. Um, I think the word maybe you'd send me in advance was, was hero, which is a little trickier word to kind of get your arms around. I've had a number of models. Um, one is Kimball Anderson, who's just, um, he's a senior partner at the firm, has been you know, doing 100 to 200 hours of pro bono on some of the most significant 
public interest cases uh, in Illinois for you know three decades now. Um, he's just he, he's an extraordinary individual, and, and he's a he's one of the single largest, if not maybe the single largest individual donor to legal aid organizations in the city of Chicago. So, you know, he talks the talk, he walks the walk and his, and he, and he, and he, and he picks up the tab at the end of the day. So he's uh he's a remarkable individual. Um, the gentleman who I mentioned before in this one case, this, uh, this innocence case, Ken Barry was our, our client. We hired Ken uh, as a paralegal at the firm shortly after that event. He, joined the firm a year before I did, um, and is still uh, with the firm. He and I worked together on a number of uh, pro bono cases. Ken has uh, uh, an expertise in the, in the criminal justice system, not so much in, in the rules of evidence, but understanding how the prisons work, understanding how to communicate with um, both the, uh, the various prosecutors' offices and the individuals themselves. So every case that we take on in the in the criminal realm, almost in Chicago, Ken gets involved in. Often goes and visits the individuals. Imagine being somebody who's um, in a prison situation or has been arrested. We do a, a number of criminal defense matters, and the guy coming to talk to you is Ken, who's you know been arrested been convicted, been wrongly convicted, has been exonerated. Um, Ken himself probably gives, you know, three or 400 pro bono hours a year helping us um, not so much manage our practice, but to implement our practice. Uh, and he's a, uh, he's one of the most inspirational people I've ever met. Uh, so he's certainly a model. And then on the, um, on the law firm side, um, you know, I, I've always had, a, there's been a number of terrific colleagues that I've had over the years, um, but one firm always sort of struck me as, as kind of doing it in the right way in the sense of how they've identified sort of a, a, a management scheme, really what they were, were trying to do um, and how they, they went about it, I thought, very thoughtfully and very strategically. And that's uh, Morgan Lewis. Um, Amanda Smith has been their um, first their pro bono partner, and now I think she's their chief talent officer there. Um, I, I always thought that she um, approached things in a way that I wanted to emulate in terms of identifying firm goals, um, new initiatives, and, and really was very thoughtful and very uh, strategic in how she went about doing what we do. Oh, Greg, thank you so much. That's such an inspiring way to end our conversation. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. My pleasure, um, and uh, look forward to doing it again. Thank you so much to Greg for making the time to be with us. New and archived episodes of the podcast can be found on Apple Podcasts and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. And if you're listening on iTunes or what's now known as Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to leave a review. It's quick and easy to do. You could just leave a rating or add some comments, whatever you'd like. We'd appreciate the feedback and it would help make it easier for other listeners to find the show. You can learn more about us on the web at probonoinst.org. And please keep sending your comments, feedback, and suggestions to probono at probonoinst.org. For all of us here at PBI, thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time on the Pro Bono Happy Hour.